Justin here with the Small Town Psalm Podcast. Things have been a bit hectic here on the home front, but I am glad I could get this interview in. If this sounds a bit like the bass tones of the quiet storm right now, that is because my almost two-year-old and my four-year-old are now in their first week of sharing a bedroom, so barriers to proper sleep for everybody in the family are at crucial stages. I am uh, I'm here in my basement bunker putting together a conversation I had with Molly Brooks, a wine professional out of San Diego whose path looks a little bit similar to others I know, and she's excelled in it. I think it's a good listen for those who are just starting out their own studies or maybe have their first or second wine sales gig. Uh, so thanks for listening once again. This is the Small Town Sound Podcast. Hey, this is Justin with the Small Town Psalm podcast here with Molly Brooks from Epic Wine and Spirits out of San Diego, California. Now, San Diego, you're based out of San Diego. Are you do you travel to other markets quite often or is San Diego sort of like home base and that's where you work? I work 100% out of San Diego. Our team is about there well We have different teams in the city, but there are four people on the San Diego team that take care of the San Diego independent resale and restaurant uh, market, I guess you could say. And so I do travel quite a bit as often as possible on long weekends and things like that to other markets, but all of everything I do for work is in San Diego. Is that your hometown? Yeah, I was born in the Los Angeles area, but I've lived in San Diego since I was six, so I would consider myself a San Diegan for sure. A lot of people tell me that it's a place to move to, that it's amazing. Is that true? It is amazing, and it's hard to, it's actually hard to find a true San Diegan in the sense of somebody that was born here and has lived here their whole life. Most of the city is that comprised of people that were transplanted out here for some reason, whether that's college or the military, because we all we have every branch of the military out here in San Diego County or for work or something like that and just decided never to leave. Yeah, my grandparents, um, my grandfather was in the Navy and he loved San Diego. He spent some time out there and he absolutely loved it. They were it was one of his favorite places in the country and he talked about it quite fondly. Um, the, uh, so you've been in sales for how long now? Well, I've been with Epic for a little over two years. And before that, I worked for a company that had, an, they had a brick and mortar retail store, an online retail presence, but they were also an importer and were self-distributed in California. So I did a little bit of sales work for them, but I was wearing so many hats that I wouldn't necessarily say that I got a great feel for the sales world until I started working with Epic full-time. And how would you describe the company as a company overall? Like what, what would, what would you feel the focus is? For Epic? Yeah. So Epic's a mid-sized distributor in California were probably just rounding out the top five. The two largest distributors in California, much like a lot of the country, are Southern Glazers and the RNDC associate in California is called Young's Market Company. So those are the two largest. And then we're, like I said, so we're around the fifth largest, but we're just a fraction of that size. And our focus is, I mean, we sell wine from all over the world, except for Eastern Europe, really. And so I, but to define it as our major suppliers, I guess, the company uh, does a lot of California business with Foley family wines. We have a couple of large we do a lot of South American business with Vino del Sol and also Foley Family has some South American wineries. Broadbent is one of our portfolios as well and Jorge Ordonez, which is a big Spanish portfolio. So we, we sell wine from all over the world. The spirits portfolio is mostly craft spirits. So we don't have any of the big 
whiskey brands or things like that, but we do have a lot of really great niche craft, small production spirits and a little bit of sake and a couple of Bavarian German beer brands as well. Oh, fun. What, um, what are the beer brands? So the beer brands are, you know, they're, it's funny because they're, um, Schoenrammer is the major, and then, um, it's actually funny, I, we sell so little of them that I, (laughs) well, you know, the thing is, it's not really a focus for our company, and one of the reasons we start, steered away from beer is that the logistical function of selling beer is so much different than selling wine and or spirits with the different forms of refrigeration. I mean, not just having cooled trucks, but having full on refrigerated trucks for kegs and things like that. Yeah. I mean, your, what's your, your summer temperatures can get pretty, pretty hot. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, we're temperate in the sense that it's usually 75-ish and sunny, but over the past couple of weeks, we've had temperatures. I mean, yesterday it was 100 degrees. Today it's 90 outside. So it's the fall right now. Yeah, well, San Diego gets what I would <laughs> what I would call an Indian summer. So it is warm during the summertime, but it actually tends to continue to be warm and even warmer as we get into September and October, and and then it gets really dry, and we get these winds called the Santa Ana winds. And that's where, if you can believe it, we have actually not gotten to the most high intensity fire season in Southern California yet. That usually happens in another month or so, or towards we're right around now. And it's kind of crazy because we've already had such intense fires uh, in all, all over the state. Yeah, 2020 seems to be sort of a weird year where literally everything is going wrong. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, but, you know, a lot of my friends who are in the business, uh, whether they are on the sales side or the uh, sommelier side, they're on the floor or if they're in management or whatever. I think a lot of people are sort of not necessarily in disarray, but it's it's this constant limbo of not necessarily what shoe, what, what's the next shoe that's going to drop, but okay, what's the next problem that's going to hit? Who's it going to affect that's in my uh, orbit? How does that affect me? What do I have to do to adjust? And I just, it's, it seems to be a constant point of conversation with anyone I talk to of like, we don't know who it's going to affect. And this, this, we'll just have to learn how to adapt as quickly as possible. Yeah. And um, by the way, the other brewery just popped into my head. It's Schwendel. So two different Bavarian breweries. Anyway, just because I have to have that on record. Um, But (laughs) but yeah, so I was joking around with friends the other day saying somebody somebody out there needs to stop saying 2020 can't get any worse because then the universe is like, well, hold my beer. Let's put something else out there. Yeah, I don't think people understand necessarily that like this all stops either way when like the ball drops in Times Square where there won't be anybody. Um, like, th- I mean, things can get worse in 2021. We just don't know it, but it could get better and you never know. But like, like that's, but that's like the, the, the adaptability of the hospitality industry, I think is, is definitely one of its strengths. And I know so many of my friends are doing their best to, to make things work to their advantage just to stay alive. I think, I think, I think so many people who work in this industry understand that like this may not be the year for them to thrive and be a powerhouse, but at the same time, it might help us all be more efficient and help us learn to build up the survival skills and make our, our businesses a little bit more, um, more efficient and streamlined. Yeah. I've been really inspired. I work with, all different kinds of accounts from full service restaurants, fast casual, fine wine stores to neighborhood liquor stores. And I've been really inspired by the way that some of these businesses have innovated in the way that they sell and the way that they market themselves. And I think it's, it's definitely obviously been a sea change. And even 
my friends who are no longer employed finding new ways to be a part of the conversation or create new spaces for themselves in the industry. So that's that's one positive I think from this year is that there, we've seen the, the pace of innovation has exploded. I don't think anyone would want to be asked a question on the record. And that's, I would never ask this question because I don't think it's relevant of like, do you enjoy your job right now? Like I, that's not really the goal I would, I, but more, more accurately what I would say is um, now that you're, you're with a company like Epic and you're, you're selling wine, you have accounts that are uh, a very diverse set of accounts. Do you feel as though you've learned a lot in general about how companies can survive and become more efficient and do things in ways that they haven't before? Do you feel like you've learned because because of you've seen that wide array of of companies? Do you think do you feel do you feel as though it's been a really good uh, learning situation for you? Yeah, this year has been a learning situation for me in several ways and the first part of that is seeing all of these companies change the way they do business. And I feel like because I deal with so many different accounts, I get a better bird's eye view of how the hospitality food and beverage industry is changing generally. But I think another thing that I've learned and been forced to learn through this situation is that there was a strange coincidence that happened that right before the shutdown happened, we had one team member that was his entire job was to visit neighborhood liquor stores. And in San Diego, that's an entirely different business. I'm not sure how it is with you, but in San Diego, most of the liquor stores are owned by people that are all actually cousins and family and uncles. And they're, they're all Chaldeans, uh, which is kind of, I don't know how that happened, but you know, sometimes there are communities where somebody gets, starts running a business and they say, oh, this is a really great business for me and my family to run and then and on and on and on. Anyway, so we had one guy that was dealing with all the neighborhood liquor stores and it's a different game than the fine wine retail store because everyone wants a better deal and they don't really care about how the wine tastes. They just want to know that it's going to sell and and all these different things. And, and everybody, since they're all related, they knew that their brother at this liquor store got a better deal than you're offering them. And and so we had one guy that was dealing with all of that and he quit a week before the shutdown happens. So instead of, um, instead of hiring someone to replace him, we split all of his accounts between the other four people on the team. So I adopted a couple dozen accounts that are, that I had never serviced that, that type of account before. So over the past six months, I've really been learning to deal with a different kind of buyer and, uh, and situation, which has been a learning experience for sure. And I'm still learning and yeah. Well, I'm, I'm about maybe an hour and a half drive away, but Metro Detroit has a lot of, um, a lot of stores owned by, um, uh, Chaldeans as well. And, um, I mean, a lot of wine goes through those stores and, uh, you know, it's the, the, the average sort of dynamic that I see in Michigan doesn't sound that different than what it is where you're from, except I would say you probably have more high end fine dining opportunities than, than we would. Um, how has fine dining, uh, in your area been affected? So San Diego's fine dining scene for a long time has been controlled mostly by large corporate chains, especially in the downtown area where uh, there's a lot of tourism. We have a huge convention center there. The baseball park is downtown. There are, that's where a lot of the hotels are for people coming in for conferences or for tourism even, because you're very close to Balboa Park, which is our huge our large outdoor and museum municipal park. And so there's Flemings and Mortons and Del Frisco's. And in the past 10 years or so, there's been more growth in upscale casual to fine dining with a couple of companies that are based in San Diego that are kind of like a a, a restaurant group, I guess you could say, that um, they have a couple of specialized restaurants. Um, and 
so I would say there's not, there isn't much fine dining in San Diego. There's before COVID, there was really only one or two places that you couldn't go in sandals and jeans that had a dress code at all, really. Um, and obviously when all the restaurants got shut down, that cut everything off as far as on-premise and most of the fine dining restaurants closed down completely until the restaurants were able to open to outdoor service uh, about two months ago now. And for a city that has such great weather so much of the year, San Diego before this actually had very little patio dining. So that's been a huge shift in the restaurant scene where the city has relaxed a lot of its restrictions on patio dining. And a lot of the restaurants have actually created what, what are called parklets. I don't know if you have that phenomenon out there where you take over parking spaces in the street and make it into a nicer patio. You know, you put up wood floors and gates and things like that and fancy accoutrement. Um, I, I know about them. Um, we, my restaurant, we were approached by the city that we're in uh, to try to do something sort of like that. But the, the whole experience was very disorganized and nothing ever got off the ground. And, you know, we, we, things happen and that's fine. Um, you know, I, I think, I think those ideas are very good. I think that certainly is a bandage to a really bad problem. So I guess, I mean, but that's, that's the thing though, is like, like it's such a, it's a COVID is such a big problem for a lot of people. It's hard to have like one definitive answer or even uh, have the ability to, to put together five or six of your best solutions and think that that's going to solve everything but you're you're sort i wouldn't say that you're lucky but you know you're at least you're in a, i mean you're in sales you're you're going around from place to place you're still able to do your job which means you have a job which is cool because a lot of people don't have jobs now yeah. um but you're also you're also putting yourself a little bit at risk here with people that you don't necessarily know that well that's true so there I've, i'm i feel a little ambivalent about the situation in the sense that i feel very fortunate to still have my job and I've been fully employed and working full-time through all of this. And I know people in sales that were furloughed or laid off because they were working for such large companies like Southern and Glazers here has so many people on their San Diego team. There were some people that only visited only serviced restaurants. And so when the restaurants closed, those people were unnecessary and so everyone on the Epic team has a mixture of on and off premise. And so when the shutdown happened, our company actually got a legally, a, a, we got a legal document signed that classified us as essential workers so that we could be in the strictest part of the quarantine, we could be out and about visiting our retail partners and making sure that they had inventory. And, and the company was not making us go out on the street. The, it was sort of, the idea is that we are a part of the supply chain and that is important. And we can do a lot of our work from home and people have different levels of comfort with their own physical health and their preparedness to, you know, with, with, they provided us with PPE and all that sort of thing. So it's sort of like be out as long as you're comfortable with and you know, keep doing your job from home if you aren't that comfortable being out in the workforce. Your job is sales. So selling is the thing that we're looking at, not necessarily how much you are or aren't in, in the world. Because, I mean, we do track our mileage for for work purposes, but that's not really what the goal of the business was over the past six months. I mean, the goal should be results. It shouldn't be your, your habits or your situations that you put yourself in. I, I don't really understand. Like, like I, I was reading a story a few days ago about uh, companies that put like uh, cameras in their, in their employees' laptops to make sure that they're working online. I'm just like, are you serious? Like they're just trying, like all, if, if they give you deliverables, if they produce results, what does it matter if they're sitting at their computer from 9am to 5pm? You just, you need the results. That's all you need. Like, right. And uh, the same thing with GPS trackers on cars. Like 
Like, come on, like, like just check the sales. If they're doing their job, great. If they're not, then they're not and address it accordingly. But, you know, I know, I know that I don't, own a distributor uh so it's really easy for me to be on the sidelines but i that seems like micromanagement and in a situation like this where so much unknown is happening it sounds cool to have uh, a place to work that really isn't giving you the pressure to be uh in a in a experience that feel, makes you feel unsafe yeah yeah and it's it, it it's a weird feeling though, because I have friends that are also in sales whose companies asked them to work from home hundred percent, didn't want them venturing out at all. And then I have, you know, friends in sales and friends in restaurants that got laid off or some friends that got overworked because they were the general manager and now they have to do everything if they're doing to go service and things like that with their food. And, um, it almost, it feels weird to have, I mean, my job has definitely changed, but it hasn't changed as much as I see some of my other friends in the industry. And, and on top of that, I also feel fortunate that I am a single person. I mean, I have a boyfriend, but we don't have children. So I don't have to be teaching children from home in this scenario, whether or not I'm, you know, I have friends that are now unemployed and have to teach their kids from home, but even more kind of insane on the mental workload is working full-time from home and teaching your children from home. Yeah. I got plenty of friends that are in that boat and, uh, I don't wish that upon anybody to be honest. <laughs> um, you're talking, yeah, two having two you're, you, you know, both both parents working full time plus kids who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, uh, trying to figure out, make sure that everything's working correctly with the computer, help them with their studies. The teacher may be doing a really good job with, with the adjustments, or they may not. You don't know. Just depends on the situation. Like, there's so many different stresses involved in that. Um, but you know, like I feel like that's that's not necessarily a unique thing and that's the sort of the tragic thing about that is that like there's just so many people that are going going through that how personally have has this year affected you how how do you feel um this year has changed your opinion of anything about this industry or people uh i mean i don't know if i would connect it directly to the industry but the year that's another thing that kind of makes me feel guilty is that I've had my own, you know, emotional struggles with this year, with everything that's going on. I mean, first of all, people getting sick and dying, people losing their jobs, the economy collapsing, and then obviously on top of that, politics, the election, social justice and racial justice and protests. And I find myself really taking it hard I don't know if it's I just feel all the negativity more strongly than other people but there are times that I've felt really sad about the way things are and kind of hopeless for the future and then there are times when I feel really positive because I see people changing the way they live their lives and being able to move forward so it's a little bit of both I mean like I said, I, I don't. I spent a lot of time watching Netflix. I went through the entire Clone Wars series in like two weeks, <laughs> um, which I don't know if anyone out there isn't listening, but the Star or doesn't know, but the Star Wars Clone Wars series is seven seasons long, <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of watching computer animated Star Wars characters. Um, Wait, you watched seven seasons of something in yeah, two weeks? Yeah, that's what I did with my quote-unquote free time. I just felt like, because I didn't want to think about what was going on in the world outside and uh, and that, and I cooked a little bit and I adopted a cat. And <laughs> um, The ratio of, fr- of good Fridays versus annoying Fridays versus okay Fridays, what's that, what's that like for you? You know, actually, I would say that since... COVID started, the ratio of good, quiet Fridays where I can get work done from home is a lot higher. And I don't know if that says something about the 
efficiency of retail buyers versus on-prem buyers. Uh, but there's a lot less scrambling to make sure people have product for the weekend. Well, salespeople aren't immune to this by any stretch, but there's, it's worth saying that some buyers need to be coached how to, how to buy properly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think in, well, we can get into this a little bit later, but there's not a lot of mentorship on the buying side in San Diego, just because of the way people move in and out of these positions. So it's not like people are given when you take on a buying position, you're not given a how to guide, like how to be a good buyer for your reps. So it's, you know, it's not, it's just, it's ignorance, not in a negative way. It's just people don't know. I think there's a lot of that in a lot of different industries. What I mean by that is I don't really get a vibe sometimes from, from people, from but my friends, my friends who aren't in the industry, like that somebody trained them in any sort of way. And I, I think that's something that, you know, it's problematic depending on what your job is. You know, sometimes it's good to have those situations pop up where you learn on your feet and fuck all for training. Who cares? Right. But, <laughs> but sometimes it matters. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's also the same thing on the sales side. You don't, a lot of distributors or brokers, they don't have a how-to guide to be good at sales and be a good rep to your buyers. So it works both ways too. Where are you in your, in your wine studies? Like what is your current situation and where do you see yourself going? So currently I, I guess I'll list the certifications that I have and I'll maybe mention when I achieved them. And then if there are certain organizations with which one might move forward, I'll mention whether or not I'm planning on doing so. So I'm an advanced SOM with the court of master sommeliers and I passed that exam in July of 2016. I also have my WSET level three certification from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. And then I am a French wine scholar and a Spanish wine scholar, which is a part of an organization called the Wine Scholar Guild. And I am a certified Cicerone, which is kind of like the beer equivalent of a sommelier, I guess you could say. And that is level two of what are now, there are four levels in that program as well. And so there, I mean, with the That's wine. a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I used <laughs> it as a, as a way to, to focus my studies. You know, the, I was going through the court and they don't have a syllabus. So I was looking at ways to sort of focus on different levels of diving deeper. And so, you know, the WSET level three, I would say at this point is similar to certified level information um, with the court. And then from there, I took French wine scholars so I could dive deeper to, let's say, the advanced level of knowledge that you need for in French wine at the advanced level exam with the court. And the same thing, well, I just finished the Spanish wine scholar uh, about, I took it in May. And so, uh, and, and it's something, you know, if people that have known me my entire life know that I always like to dive deep and I love learning and, and it's a, not for necessarily for the pin or the certificate, but, you know, I got, I have a master's degree in history and I always wanted to be a history teacher and you don't need a master's degree to be a teacher. You really only need a bachelor's degree and a teaching credential. But for me, it was more about, well, I want to get deeper into this, the, my love of learning and I want to write a thesis because I really want to get into certain subjects and then go back into the career path that I had imagined for myself, which I ended up veering off of because I ended up diving down the rabbit hole of wine and beer and hospitality. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of why I have all those certifications. It's just another way for me to focus my, my, um, my, my propensity to go down these rabbit holes. So instead of, you know, knowing, having someone say like, these are the more important things that you should be focusing on rather than going, you know, all the way down through, let's say, I, I don't want to name drop any non-important Spanish regions, <laughs> but anyways. Well, well, but I mean, there's having a structure is pretty relevant when 
like that like having that in place when your life is chaotic is super helpful mm-hmm. and if you're going to do something like french wine scholar or spanish wine scholar like i mean it's clearly going to keep you on track um away from distractions i mean I, there are certain elements that uh are required that are certainly different than you know the quartermaster sommeliers uh, could you describe a little bit what the spanish wine scholar um situation was for you like what you go through yeah, yeah. So uh, the program is brand new this year, and I actually am fortunate enough to know the gentleman, Rick Fisher, that designed it. He lives in San Diego, so we, I've known him for a couple of years. Uh, and it's there. the Wine Scholar Guild, when you sign up for any of these courses, they send you the book of materials, and they also have, there's a lot of online materials. So there are flashcards and um, learning modules and glossaries and things like that. They have so many resources. And then you can choose usually to sign up to be a part of a webinar series. So in addition to all of those online resources, there is a once a week webinar with an instructor that goes through the certain regions every week and answers questions and dives a little bit deeper. And one of the things that I like about the program is that you get this book with the, a study guide of the entire world of Spanish wine. And, but it's also very clear in the book and in all of the learning modules that there are need to knows and other things that you should know, but that you won't be tested on, which is kind of tricky because you want to know everything, but if you want to pass a test, there are things to focus on. And I think it's really great because you read through the whole thing and you get context for Spanish wine, and then you really hone in on the need to knows, and that gives you a really strong foundation for the things that you're going to experience more often in your day-to-day wine life. So for the course I signed up for, I did the webinars and it ended up being a a truncated program timeline wise, but the same amount of webinars. So we had two webinars a week. And and so we would go through different regions, do sort of practice quizzes, things like that. And then at the very end of it, um, there, once the program is finished, you have, you actually have a year from sign up date to take the exam. And the exam is proctored in, uh, you, you can take it from your own computer, but you have to have a, a well, I think, I think you can you have to have somebody present. You know, you have to have a, a camera, a computer with a camera. Oh, okay. Uh, because it is filmed. So you can't, cheat. Um, and it's a one hour, 100 question, multiple choice test, and there's no tasting. Um, and I was we were actually fortunate because Rick teaches, for, he's based in San Diego, he has an office here, there was there were about five people that were doing the program at the same time as me that were also from San Diego. So we actually ended up taking the test in person on paper with scantrons in a socially distanced environment and so so that was the program and then it takes up to six weeks to get results because they send everything i think they're uk based and uh so that was the spanish wine scholar program it sounds pretty um pretty useful for anyone not even just in as a son but as as a sales rep i mean mm-hmm. spain's kind of a i wouldn't say it's a, a core country that people think of as a foundation of wine but the reality is like maybe the the, the economy of uh, wine exports from spain to the united states is only 40 odd years but there's so much history there that it's really one of the major players oh totally and from from my perspective uh my portfolio actually has we carry Jorge Ordonez wines, which he was one of the first importers from Spain. Uh, he was the first person to import Albarino, for instance. And if you look at actually all of the brands that he has worked with in the past, most of them are huge, bigger names that have now, you know, 
been bought out by Southern or things like that, but it encouraged me to explore that part of our portfolio that I hadn't really dove into before. I mean, obviously we sell a decent amount of Rioja and Albarino and um, some of our wines from Calatayud and, um, you know, inexpensive wines from the La Mancha Plain, but it was really great to actually be able to, when I was studying, pick some wines from our portfolio and say, okay, now I'm really wrapping my head around this region and it'll be easier for me to sell the wine because I know that much more about where it's coming from and, and all that. Going back a little bit to the, um, some of the exams and certifications, et cetera, you said you passed the advanced sommelier exam through the court in uh, 2016. Was that your first, uh, first try at it? Yeah, that was, um, it was my first try and, um, yeah, I, uh, I have the, was that, was that the same exam as you? I don't, I don't remember. Uh, it was July I told you, in oh, Phoenix. No. Okay. So no, I was in St. Louis and I failed miserably that year. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I rectified that situation the year after, but, um, what was your experience like in 2016? Uh, I went into it feeling really nervous. I was coming from, I had a job at that point as the general manager and wine director of a upscale casual kind of craft, craft, not, I mean, uh, not gastropub, um, but like sort of farm to table craft restaurant. And, uh, I, being the general manager and wine director, I didn't have a lot of free time to study. And I was going through some other, I was going through a divorce at the time. So there was some personal stuff going on. And so I was freaking out about not having studied enough. I mean, my study, my study ideology, I guess that year was sort of like, okay, this exam is supposed to test if I can do my job as a sommelier and wine director. And if I can't prepare for it by doing my job well, then maybe it's the wrong test for me. So I decided to turn my job into, or try to use my job to study as much as I could in the sense that my wine list wasn't big, but it was large enough to have most of the classics from around the world. And I said yes to every invitation to go to a a tasting from a distributor or an importer and ask questions and really get nerdy with the people that were behind the tables. And, And then obviously I was as the GM and the wine director running the numbers and I was going to our local blind tasting group once a week. And, and then luckily we've got, um, we've got a few, uh, probably now about, I think there are 15 advanced psalms in San Diego County and one master psalm. Well, technically there are three that live in San Diego County, but two of them aren't really active. And anyways, so, it's a pretty big scene then. I mean, that's, it's the scene that sounds like it, it takes care of itself. Yeah. There, I think there are a lot of people that are, well, to put it frankly, there really are, there are probably fewer than 15 sommelier positions in San Diego County. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, 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 you know, people are interested in the learning and the craft and the hospitality. And so I think that, you know, most people that, um, consider themselves sommeliers, maybe they don't have the title on the floor, but they sell wine and they run wine programs and um, they are true hospitality professionals. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I was n- really nervous going into it. And I was also the only person from San Diego that was going to that exam. And so I felt was feeling a little alone. And when I got there, um, I already I knew a couple of people from Vegas that were going to be there and a couple people from San Francisco and um, the Bay Area and the people. There was a little cluster of people from Vegas that kind of took me into their little study family because, you know, people kind of break out into 
cliques, I guess, if you will, of like, okay, we're going to study or we're not going to study because we want to be in our own heads or whatever. Uh, and for me, it was really great to be brought into a little community to feel like I belonged there because I was kind of coming from this space of I'm the only person from San Diego right now. I don't really have a sommelier job, a fancy job. Do I really belong in this space? And it was really nice to feel accepted into the space like I did belong. And that really helped calm my nerves, I think, for and set the stage for having a good time there. It's a hard situation to find that that culture. Um, that's that exam is a pretty high pressure exam, and you know there's not a lot of people there. What maybe seventy per exam? I would yeah, say. Yeah, we had. I, th- I think like we that. had seventy five. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, so you're you're pulling seventy five people from professionals from all around the country and maybe the world. Certainly a little bit in Canada here and there, and you know, you're you're very well maybe going into it not knowing a single person. So you're isolated to an extent, you know, you're lucky if you do find a couple people. Um, but I think that process definitely freaks people out as they're, as they're getting ready for the exam. It's, it's this sort of high pressure, high stakes feeling, but trying to figure out where your community really lies because like it's an isolating feeling having to study all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that you feel would be, like, how would you, how would you prepare somebody who let's say, passed their certified exam and is looking forward like what what's the advice that you would have for them I think that finding that community was so important to me and the 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 reason that I knew people that were going to be there that weren't in my market was because I've taken as many opportunities as I've been allowed to um uh to really meet new people in our industry, attend different tastings. Um, Like I'll, you know, shoot up to Los Angeles for a tasting and meet a bunch of LA people or the Bay Area or Vegas. Those are places that are within, you know, two hours plane travel to get to uh, or car travel that you can actually, you know, make a another part of your community. And so that's, one of the things that helped me, I think this, one of the good things that this shutdown has done is helps people be more comfortable with connecting virtually. And I think that's a really great way to get to know people on, from a studying perspective, or even just, you know, being connected emotionally to your peers. Um, because you can't, it can't all be study, right? You have to, if you're only communicating with people in this nerdy study way, then you're kind of losing what, in my opinion, is a part of why we all get into this. We all love wine, but we also love the interpersonal interactions. And and I think that was, is really important to have that to me when when I was, you know, planning on getting to the advanced exam. What do you want to get out of it now? I mean, you've you've passed that exam. There's one big exam left if you wanted to go that route what what's what are your feelings on that uh at first I thought I was gonna dive straight back into studying and take the MS exam the next year my the first year I was eligible but my my career path actually kind of took a turn because I I quit my restaurant job right before I went to take the advanced exam I sat down with the owner and I told her that I wanted to pursue a job that had more of a focus on wine. And so we agreed that, you know, that would be my, my last, that would be, I would, my last day, you know, before I left for the exam would be my last day at the restaurant. And so when I came, and I also think that's another reason why I wasn't as, why I was able to be more present for the exam, because I wasn't worried about turning my cell phone off for two hours as the general manager of a restaurant that only had two managers. So, (laughs) yeah, so that was, I mean, it was a really great decision, I think, for my mindset. But I came home to San Diego, and there weren't those opportunities in San Diego. And I had kind of resolved to stay in San Diego because it's my hometown. And so, you know, like I said, there aren't that many sommelier positions available and there and wine director positions are sort of like, you have to jump on it when somebody vacates something, you know? 
And so I, I took my time. I had a little bit of a savings account and I was fun employed for a few months. And then I took some part-time work at a, um, a, a great little wine shop here. And towards, I guess in the end of October, November, I, um, ended up starting to work for an importer and distributor, a small San Diego based company. And so that kind of changed my path a little bit because I still wanted to keep learning, but the court has always put an emphasis on service uh, and I know, I mean, to get into the advanced exam, working in a restaurant is a big part of the points you get towards being able to take the exam. Um, I'm not sure how heavily weighted that is at the MS testing level anymore, because I don't know that many people that are, I mean, I know a lot of people that are still working in restaurants that are studying for the MS exam, but I know just as many people that are no longer working in restaurants that are studying for the MS exam because they need the time to study. And it's hard to find that time when you're working a restaurant, a full-time restaurant gig. Yeah, I think go, going into the, the study process and looking at this, you know, I, I don't really think what, what I would say this this way doesn't, I don't think it's naive, but there's something about this process that is very daunting. And what you said is sort of paradoxical, like, like, you know, how do you find time to, to study to be the best um, sommelier when you're being a sommelier, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, I don't, like, it's a really difficult thing to sort of contemplate. And, you know, a lot of folks that I've talked to who have taken and passed the, the advanced exam have said something pretty similar. But one other thing that has been said quite a bit is I just don't think I have the time for, I got so much going on in life and, and that's right down the line uh, that could be people with parents or people with children, people who, uh, who don't have children. Um, and I don't really know, everyone's got their own answers and I think it's like the big mountain to climb. And do you want to start that mountain? I, one thing that I've tried to figure out is, is it okay to be in the process knowing full well, I may never even take the exam, but just study for study's sake. Right. Like there's something to that. And I, I guess that's where I try to figure out where my future is. And I wonder how you think about studying in your future, even if you don't take that exam. Yeah. And I, and like I said, it's my life is studying, you know, I mean, learning anyways. And so I don't ever want to stop that. I would be lying if I said I don't have the time to study. I am, I have a significant other, but I don't have any children and I have a job that is, a, well, I started at eight and it ends at five 30. And there are of course always more emails to be written, but there is time in my evening if I want to make it to study. I think for me, the thinking about where having the MS pin or certification, you know, where would that take me in my career? And I'm really enjoying the growth that I have seen in myself uh, in my current space working for Epic. And I don't think that having, I don't think that the time I would need to focus on studying specifically to pass the MS exam and then passing would actually do that much more for my career in the sense of, you know, you look at the annual salary surveys and sure people with the MS title make quite a bit more on average than people with the advanced title, but it's still not a ton of money. You know, nobody's, nobody's becoming a millionaire just by passing the MS exam. So it really needs to be, you know, what is the return? I think I would rather study sales tactics and learn more from people that have been doing my job with my company for 10 years or so more and, and learning to grow my business. And that will have more, literally pay more dividends to me than, you know, shooting for the MS pin and, all of the extra service studying because I'm not working on the floor anymore, which also, you know, I kind of, as an aside, I feel like the service portion of the exam 
I think it's kind of funny that there's a requirement at the advanced level or you get more points for being still working on a restaurant floor because the service portion of the advanced and master sommelier exams are unlike anything that I've ever experienced on a restaurant floor. And I think unlike anything that most people that work in hospitality have ever experienced. And so it's more about being able to act the part in that exam scenario and have the muscle memory that is expected of you through those, through their standards versus actually having really extensive floor experience. But that's a whole other thing. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's, you know, it was me, me taking the service exam for the first time was completely bizarre. I've never experienced anything like it. Like I don't work at 11, 11 Madison park. Like I don't really, I don't know what those feelings are, uh, going into work, uh, it, you know, day-to-day experiencing that dynamic. Like, I don't know anything about that stuff. Um, so it, 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 it did strike me as bizarre, but I, you know, there's, there's elements of that that are super important depending on what kind of restaurant you're trying to run. And it certainly, I think it certainly shows and helps to build standards. Um, I guess one thing that I'm, I find interesting about this conversation is it's pretty typical of other conversations where I've had, I've had with other people who, who have the green pin and it's not adversarial when they say like, Oh, I don't want to do this anymore or whatever. It's just, and I think MSs would say this as well. Like there are other paths you can take and however you deem you need to spend your time go do that. Like, there's nothing magical about becoming a master sommelier. There's other awesome things you can do. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's also, some people would make the argument why even take the advanced exam if you're not going to try for masters. But then that's also like, you know, in my other, in my previous educational life, it's not like you get a master's exam and everyone asks you, well, why not just get a PhD? You know, it's only two to four more years of work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a good analogy. Um, Yeah. Well, so speaking of like you're, I mean, you have a, a master's you said yeah. in history, right? So there's got to be other things that you like to read besides food and wine books. Yeah. Like what, what, what do you like to read? Um, well, I was a part of a book club for about half a year before it got disintegrated. Um, and the, the reading has been more, I don't think self-help is the right word for it, but more um, self exploration or um, exploration of trends in humanity. I've been getting a lot more interested about, you know, the greater, the greater good, if you will, and been listening to podcasts about that sort of thing. Um, And I'm trying to think of the last. You can't, you you can't say that without, without conjuring up hot. (laughs) If you, have you seen hot fuzz? Okay, sorry. I just <laughs> every every time someone says it in my head, I'm always the thinking the greats good. are good. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the I'm trying to think of the last actual book I read, and it was probably Circe, um by um, Madeline. I can't remember her name, but it's uh, it's a book about a um, Greek. Uh, she's like one of the daughters of, I don't know what they call her. She's a nymph, I think is what they call her. Anyways, so she, it's, she got ex, she was exiled by Zeus to this island and she's a minor player in a lot of really important mythological stories. And so it's like all of these mythological stories um, of Odysseus and the Minotaur and all of these things throughout ancient history that she, from her perspective, from this little island that she's exiled to. And it's got this, you know, magical realism kind of thing going on. And um, uh, so that that was a really fun book to read. And then every now and then I go back to my collection of Edgar Allan Poe short stories and poems. Um, so those are those are the last couple of things that I read in actual book form. Yeah, I mean, st- studying or not, like it's this is the. You know, I'm not going to prescribe this to other people who are uh, trying to sit for uh, you know the MS exam, but like, like I need to have those elements in my life uh, of exploration that are beyond 
wine notes i like it's just it's it's so impossible for me to enjoy just that and the only thing i've been able to do is like i've incorporated this idea of where like i'm studying a region and so i'm i build and host a dinner a very small dinner very socially distanced and masked etc etc uh around one thing so like i'm hosting a dinner soon here that's just uh it's called uh, one night in piedmont so i basically have this nine course dinner um so i'm learning how to make Piemonte's food and pairing the wines etc and that brings to life that element but it's like there's even then there's got to be other elements to this besides that and i really worry about the mental health of people who are so aggressively studying like if that's it's such a daunting task and i know like just from experience and talking to friends how stressful it is yeah and that's you know one of my mental getaways is i really like long walks and San Diego luckily has a lot of open space and especially in the neighborhoods that I've been living in for the past couple of years where it's just like put in some headphones put on a podcast sometimes it's about wine usually it's not and just kind of let the road take me somewhere and uh, and that's been really important for my mental health especially in the past six months or so. So you think you'll be in San Diego for a long time? I think so. Yeah. I, you know, there was a point where I was really interested in getting up to the Bay area and exploring opportunities in San Francisco possibly or Napa because I wanted to feel a little closer to the vineyards basically. I mean, San Diego has some vineyards too, but just generally I just, I wanted to feel closer to the heart of the industry and San Diego is not a cheap place to live, but San Francisco is bit, it kind of depends on the algorithm you use, but it's up there. It's tied with New York for the most expensive city in the United States to live in. And so everything I looked at, you know, I thought about transferring when my company had an opening up there and that money didn't really make sense. And I talked to a couple people about restaurant positions and I was, I was surprised that they pay about the same as San Diego, which is barely a living wage in San Diego. And, you know, not, I'm not faulting the restaurant, you know, a business is a business and you can only make money so many ways. Um, but it just didn't make sense to move. And, um, and my family lives in San Diego. My parents live in the house I grew up in and my brother and his wife just actually moved back to San Diego. So I've got a really great network here um, and also a great friend community. So it's, it's a hard, it's hard to leave. Well, you've, it's, I mean, it's a pretty gorgeous place, first of all, but you've, one thing that's really important with this is, and you kind of intimated when we're talking about the actually passing and looking at, you know, um, salary surveys is that this industry, and I've been in this industry for about almost 20 years um, in various parts, restaurants or, or distribution or retail. And it's very clearly nearly impossible to become pretty wealthy in this industry. It's a very much a lifestyle industry that brings amazing joy and beautiful camaraderie and friendship and uh, chances to go uh, amazing places in the world and experience things that maybe others can't experience who aren't in this industry. And that trade-off isn't a bad trade-off. Yeah, I I don't feel like I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. I can save money. I'm contributing to my retirement account. I just bought a new car and there's enough money in my budget for a car payment. Yay. You know, and, uh, and I always... I say to people that, you know, they ask about what it's like um, to make a living in wine. And I say, well, you never be a millionaire, but you also you almost never pay full price. <laughs> Whether that's the fact that, you know, I can buy samples from my company or have leftover samples from tastings, or you go to a restaurant account where your friend works and they give you a discount or you get an extra splash. Or my mom loves going out to dinner with me because usually if we go somewhere where I know somebody, they'll send us an extra appetizer and she feels all fancy that somebody knows her daughter. <laughs> um, my dad doesn't really like going out to restaurants with me because I eat place at places where he doesn't want the food because he's a very meat and potatoes kind of guy. Um, 
but uh but yeah so it's it's I find it a really fun lifestyle in the sense that you I like being surrounded with people that are also as interested about what's in the glass as they are what is on the plate and um and I think yeah it's a community and a lifestyle that really brings like-minded people like that together right people that want social interaction and yeah well let me let me let me get jump in on this one thing here real quick so you're i mean you're talking about um a pretty well balanced which sounds like a pretty well balanced and enjoyable life and but you're doing it on the sales side and when you talk about things that are, you, you never pay a full price well one of the coolest things about the industry is something like an incentive trip and, you know, oftentimes one thing that is part of that is, or maybe not part of that, but is similar is, you, you know, you get to network with people uh, all around the world. And sometimes you get free places to stay in really cool vineyards around the world. But, you know, part of that would be talking to the sales reps that want part of that action, that want to be, that want to do those things. Like, so how do you, uh, now that you've, you're, you've really dug into these, this industry, how do you, how do you inform? How do you inspire? How do you tell the new, the newly green sales rep how to how to win those incentive trips? Like, what's the foundation that you have to build to get your career in a place where these things have real access and real? Uh, yeah. So I think there's a. Um, I think that getting to that point takes. It's kind of a long game, I would say. So with my company. I inherited one of the, there are four people that cover San Diego and I inherited what was, I think, basically the original territory. And then as it grew and grew, we split it off into more people. So I have a lot of on-premise accounts and a lot of longstanding business. And the guy that had the job before me was there for years and years. And so he knew which of our suppliers always had incentive trips. Once a year, there would be this three-month incentive contest program right and so he started to build his territory you know btg placements and recurring orders from retailers according to those suppliers that he knew would always have incentive trips and so that became something that i started to see as i went through my first year with the company oh, this is a placement here because it's going to get more sales traction at this time of year. And that's going to be when the incentive is. And so that has, that's something that I learned from just, you know, inheriting a lot of placements from my previous, uh, the person that had the job previously, and then talking to my boss where it's, where you have to think about there are certainly things that you're going to love that are esoteric in your book, or maybe they're from a smaller supplier and it's great to sell those things. But as far as thinking about incentive trips where everything is gonna be paid for, you have to be thinking about the bigger picture and thinking about which suppliers have that kind of money and which of them are offering those incentive trips every year. On the other hand, it's totally fine to focus on these little guys because if you're gonna say you have a vacation planned and you're going to go to Tuscany next year, let's say my company, we do have quite a bit of wine from Tuscany, but not a lot that's from our larger suppliers, but it might be a good idea to sell the wines from the smaller suppliers. If I'm going to fund my own trip to Italy, but those small suppliers would be happy to have me and host me for a few days at their property. Right. That seems like the, to me, in, in hindsight, the obvious alternative to incentive trips. And um, for example, we have, uh, I used to work for a company called Imperial Beverage uh, here in Michigan, and we had uh, diamond wine importers in our portfolio, which is uh, a Greek wine portfolio. It's um, owned and operated by Ted oh, yeah. Diamantis out of Chicago. And Ted, Ted now has become a, a decent friend of mine through the years. And um, so I've been to Greece three times and through through him and just basic emails conversation with him about anything like I I have learned so much about where to go what to do who to see 
all of these things and has enhanced my life exponentially and he, there has never been an incentive from them i mean he's a, he's a one-man show basically i think he has maybe one one or two employees mm-hmm. so maybe a two two-person show um but but that thing that's a really valuable thing when you want to kind of travel the world it's like having those people that can open some doors for you and uh, that they, i really think that you're you're totally right on when when you said that like you can't you can't look past these people just because they're not offering right, exactly and you know every company has their own sales goals so that's one thing and a lot of times those sales goals obviously line up with the larger suppliers so you can play both games if you you're planning out your your space smart enough well and you you definitely strike me as somebody who's not who's not a person that does that, but it's always hilarious to me when, when I walk a set and I see one that clear, clearly does not need to be in a set. I'm like, that person clearly has a brand goal. There's a son of trip or something's going on. And it's like, I really, I hate that. Cause it's like, I don't, a lot of these buyers just don't know and they get suckered into to things they should not have. And it's like, that kind of infuriates me. Sometimes yeah. Yeah. I'm fortunate happen. enough that my account list is diverse, quite diverse, actually, you know, everything from, teeny tiny neighborhood, not even liquor store, neighborhood store that only sells beer and wine to neighborhood liquor store to fine wine retailer to a restaurant that also sells retail wine and all sorts of different kinds of restaurants too, all different sizes and price points. And so that makes it a lot easier to find places to, to present the diverse wines that we sell in the Epic portfolio. Well, I, I know you're heading into your weekend here, so I don't want to um, take up any more time. And I want you to enjoy your wonderful, amazing <laughs> weather that never changes, apparently, in San Diego. Everybody is jealous of that, I think, at this point, because, uh, you know, upper Midwest winters going to get pretty nasty. Uh, but we, you know, we're having a good uh, we're having a good summer here. It's it's getting a little bit colder. But, you know. I think that you have earned your time to enjoy uh, your weekend in San Diego. And thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Um, you know, for anyone that's listening, has any questions on, on studying both, uh, both Molly and I have been through the court, always happy to help with stuff, but more than anything, I think it's been fascinating to talk with you because you have such a wide variety of experiences. And that, that's, that's a lesson that I take away from a lot of different people too, is that like, there is no one path and you know, it's really a, up to decide what kind of quality of life you're chasing. So I hope you get there and thank, thank yeah, you once again so much for having me. This has been, it's been really great to, to speak with you. And then I hope we get to meet in person sometime in the near future. You know, we actually did meet once super oh. quickly at Texom and I think you were, you were, <laughs> you were volunteering. And running to another <laughs> yeah. Room, that sounds like me at Texom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll see so. each other at Texas right. again. Cheers. Take care.